Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every month we try and deep dive into a different aspect of film history, an actor, director, series, or genre, and this month we're talking about Humphrey Bogart, and this week we are talking about... The Big Sleep. I'm Dean. I'm Boo. And welcome to the Film Club. Welcome, and also I'm kind of sad, because this is the end of Bogart month. This is. This was actually a really fun journey into um, Humphrey Bogart, the quintessential classic Hollywood actor. The leading man. But uh, yeah, we're talking about The Big Sleep Today, directed by Howard Hawks, starring Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall. It's based on the 1939 novel by Raymond Chandler. Yes, Raymond Chandler kind of was the pulp noir writer that a lot of American noir genre kind of sprung out of. He also wrote, I believe, a lot of the script for Double Indemnity. I believe so. Uh, He did that with Billy Wilder. That was my double feature for this movie because I watched Double Indemnity and The Big Sleep like right after. Mm -hmm. Very good stuff. But yeah, The Big Sleep. Uh, initial thoughts on this one going into it, because this is our, our first time watching it, right? Yeah, I didn't know what to expect, but I thought, what better way to end Bogart Month than with Bogart and Bacall? And I was very impressed by this movie. Uh, me too. But my one criticism is the plot makes no goddamn sense, but I don't think it really matters. No, and according to test audiences, when they first watched this movie, they didn't need a plot. Because they just loved everything that was going on, and I was kind of in that same canon of, yeah, I'm just enjoying every aspect of this movie. I don't need a plot. I don't need to follow, you know, this trail. It's just, I want to know what's going on. You were more involved with the aesthetic of the movie and the the character dynamic than, okay, so who killed the chauffeur? Like, who the hell is Philip Marlowe chasing right now? Mm -hmm. Like... Why in the world are we at this place again when I thought this mystery part was solved? Wait, we're in a different mystery now? When did we solve the last mystery? It kind of gets a little little away from you about halfway through. That and the bodies just keep piling up. It's like, you know, where are the police? Uh, the, The police, are they involved? I think one of them's involved. I'm not sure. But that is the big sleep. We're, yeah. we're going to get a little bit more into it. But before we do... I'm going to let everyone know what the movie's about. I have the back of the box in front of me. I'm, I'm ready to give uh, whatever this person who wrote the back of the box says about this movie. All right, let's hear it. Mm-mm. So, the gist of the film. In this adaptation of the Raymond Chandler novel of the same name, we see private detective Philip Marlowe hired by a wealthy general to stop his daughter from being blackmailed. But before the credits roll... He becomes trapped in a web of love triangles, blackmail, murder, gambling, and organized crime, leaving Marlowe to hatch a plot to free this family and trap the mastermind of this evil web of lies. (laughs) And um, that is just the big sleep. Uh, He also is playing opposite of Lauren Bacall, who's playing not the daughter being blackmailed, but her older jaded sister. sister. Vivian. Yeah. So, where uh, where you want to get started on the big sleep? Well, I think one thing we have to start with, the bookstore. This is where we get one of the earliest tropes of, you know, oh, the girl with the glasses and her hair up, and she takes the glasses off and lets her hair down, and, my God, she's been gorgeous all the time! How did we not know this? Oh, I yes. laughed so hard. Because that is, like, the second or third scene in the movie. Because yeah. it opens with no setup. It, he, it's he's Philip Marlowe walking in the house and getting the job to investigate the blackmail, right? Yeah. The first time he's actually out investigating, he goes to this bookstore. And across the street, he's like, hey, that dollface. Now that bookstore around the corner, you know anything about it? She's like, I know a few things. Well, how about I unload this little bottle of gin and you and me talk about it? And she's like, well, the store's closed. Let me just go lock the door. And they gotta be just going at it, like in that in that dissolve to yeah. like a few hours later, and it's oh my god, that that's the thing. The movie is like really funny mm-hmm. when it's not being like a crime mystery crime. Oh drama. yeah, it's a good balance between crime drama, humor, noir. Also, Looney Tunes a little bit, because that bookstore across the street from the The, main... The Acme bookstore. Acme bookstore. You know, this is a Warner Brothers production. So, you know, that's very much a Warner Brothers thing where, whether it's Looney Tunes or a TV show or a movie, 
they have Acme somewhere in there, and you kind of tie it to, oh, it's the Looney Tunes. It's the Looney Tunes. So that's why it's kind of, you know, funny that he goes into the bookstore and, you know, basically, you know, surveils the other store, but doesn't really ask her, just, you know. He's just like, so doll, do you know anything about the place across the street? I know a few things. Hey, we should drink and bang and not talk about it at all. And she's like, well, okay there, Mr. Humphrey Bogart. Which, okay. Because this happens throughout the movie. Because he is, don't get me wrong, in real life, Humphrey Bogart was pulling Lauren Bacall. Yeah. He had he had game. But in the, in the movie, you know, he's Philip Marlowe, whatever. Mm-hmm. And every woman just kind of swoons over him. And it's like, oh, oh my, you're just so, oh. But Bogart is not the, um, he's not the Adonis type that I think would be pulling women all the time. He feels like the kind of guy that would have to, you know, throw in the old college charm here. No, he's, he's attractive in a unique way. I I, I like how you had to throw a unique way. Well, because I mean, you have like Rock Hudson, you have like these other big stars where you're like, oh, okay, you know, yeah, I can see why women would go. Y- yours and, is Cary Grant, like of, oh, of the I'm old like, of the old school Hollywood leading men. You're like, if Cary Grant came on to you, <laughs> it would be a it'd be a hard sell to say no. You know, I might faint like in the old movies. <laughs> you, you got to, but I mean, there's something about Humphrey Bogart where, yeah, he is attractive. Yeah, I know, I know he's attractive. He's a leading man, what have you. Yeah. It's just. He has this, like, really weird look about him. Like, he looks, like, ten years older than he is, no matter what age he is. That was something that I was kind of... I didn't do the research on. It just popped into my head right now. He does say he's, what, like, 37 or 38 in the beginning something of the movie? Like and that. I'm just like, And you're huh? eyeballing him, and you're like, <laughs> So you're, like, almost rounding 50, right, mm-hmm. Mr. Bogart? And I, I think if you look it up, I think he actually is only, like, in his mid to late 30s here maybe Hmm. 40 because this comes out in i believe 46 and an african queen which came out in 51 he was or 52 he was like 51 right so okay okay, so yeah he's like 46 in this okay wait wait yeah god damn it he does look 10 years older than italian god Uh, damn well i mean it's also the time too you know where people are smoking a lot drinking a lot so that's you know he was also a uh, war veteran so you know all of that you know kind of just we, it'll g- age we you. get it your anti-smoking and drinking campaign must continue <sighs> i but, have asthma but <laughs> but that's the thing with like the humphrey bogart like like the um the sexual just like aura that philip marlowe gives <laughs> off is just kind of hilarious when you're pairing it with, like, five foot five Humphrey Bogart. It's just kind of funny. And that was kind of, like, a running joke behind the scenes and also in the movie that they incorporated was how short he was. Mm. And I guess, you know, in the movie they kind of had him in lifts to make him look a little bit taller or they would, you know, place the women in a position where they would look a little bit shorter than him in framing. Mm. But that's why one of the first things with the other daughter, Carmen, when she sees him, she's like, you know, well, aren't you short? You know, more along the lines yeah, of, you know... a lot shorter than I thought you'd be. I don't know why I was expecting her to be, you know... Well, aren't you too short to be a stormtrooper? You know, I was waiting for that. You're about, like, 30 years away from that. Yeah, I was a little early for that. But I like that they kind of added that in there to kind of, you know... Haha, you know, us women are taller than you, Bogey. <laughs> well, the, well, that's the gag, because in the book, um, the Raymond Chandler book... Philip Marlowe's like six one, mm-hmm. six two. He basically Philip Marlowe looks the exact opposite of what Humphrey Bogart looks like. Yeah, um, which is kind of interesting, you know, adapting stuff. But um, speaking of adapting stuff, I wanted to talk about Howard Hawks real mm-hmm. quick because he's the director here. He's adapting this from the Raymond Chandler book, and I wanted to bring this up because Howard Hawks, he's known for doing like the screwball comedies of Bringing a Baby. He does the westerns of Rio Bravo. Uh, he pre- produced horror films like the thing from another world but it's pretty sure or everybody's pretty consensus that he ghost directed that so he directed horror films Mm -hmm. he's a guy that's really good at like doing all these different genres he does the noir here the big sleep and each one of them has the feeling of being a little bit like a little bit like a comedy Mm -hmm. like he knows the joke he's playing but i want to know your thoughts on howard hawks as a director like how how good of a job you think he's doing in the big sleep Oh, I think he's doing a really good job. And hearing that he's so versatile, too, that he's not one of these genre directors. He directs everything. And, I mean, some of these movies are 
no, really, really good movies. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I, I was, you know, very impressed with The Big Sleep. I wasn't sure what we were going to get, if it was going to be like a serious noir film. And I like that we kind of get that balance of humor, a love story, and these crimes that keep occurring in this, you know, this timeline. Yeah, because I like Howard Hawks. I, I think... Okay, because I read, um, I'm, I'm reading an interview book right now with um, Ingmar Bergman, yeah. director of Seven Seal, Wild Strawberries, Persona, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Great director. And in the interview, they ask him about Hitchcock and Howard Hawks, like the big studio directors. Mm -hmm. And Bergman made a pretty astute observation that I thought kind of worked for The Big Sleep in particular. And that's that, you know, the people like Hitchcock and Hawks, they might not be the greatest artists of the cinematic form mm -hmm. but they are master technicians they understand cinematic language they understand composition they understand how to direct a scene and, and like pull all the necessary bits to tell a a story an engaging story out of it mm -hmm. even if they're not crafting the most depthful and in depthful and transcendent themes in their work like, Bergman even said, like, you know, later Hitchcock, he finally does that. I yeah. think he pointed, like, to Psycho as the big one. But with Hawks, I, I don't think he ever really mentioned it. But in this, I can see it. Because mm -hmm. The Big Sleep, directorially, is a beautiful movie. It's a great story. But I didn't pull any themes out of it. Was there anything that jumped out of you, like, the underlying stuff of the movie? No, and I, I know that that was a thing where... Even Howard Hawks was like, well, what's the plot? Who killed, you know, was it a murder? Was it a suicide? And I know it was a thing where him and Bogart called Raymond Chandler and were like, hey, who did this? And Raymond Chandler was like, I don't know. <laughs> he was just like, well, nobody knows. I, I fucking love that. Could, could you imagine you're sitting there and you're like, huh. So I wonder who kills the guy in the next episode of Murder, She Wrote. Hey. Angela Lansbury, do you know who did this? Oh, I have no fucking idea. Well, what? I thought we're shooting it next week. Dang. Yeah, we'll, we'll wing it on the day. Yeah. Oh, God. I love 1940s movies because half of them feel like we'll just wing it on the day. We'll figure it out later. And it works because, you know, you have so much going on in this story that it's like, oh, yeah, you know, well, someone did kill him or he killed himself. I don't know. Yeah. But are the two of them going to fall in love? Wait, is she married? Who's. I, wait, who is married? I thought she was married, and like he's trying to find her husband. Well, or is or is that not or is that not her husband, and it's somebody else? See, that's the thing. This movie is so confusing if you try and pick at it. Well, they keep calling Lauren Bacall's character and Vivian Mrs. Rutledge, and mm. I'm like, okay, we're eventually gonna see her husband, unless her husband has died and she's a widower. Maybe that's why she's living back home with her dad and her sister. Well, okay. No, because I think what happened is he went missing like a month ago. That was uh, somebody else. That was somebody else? Yeah, the the guy that's missing when they come into General Sternwood's house is their, I guess, like family friend. He drinks for the general since the general can't drink anymore. Yeah, that was like Rutledge, his protege, which is her husband who went missing. But then she like doesn't really want to find him because I guess she doesn't like him that much. It, it could just be a thing where, you know... Oh, I really like this guy, so why don't the two of you get married to make Papa happy? That's what this feels like. Also, the general is in, like, only the first scene and we never see him again. Yeah. Which kind of sucks because I really like the general character. General Sternwood, played by Charles Waldron. Him and Bogart play off each other really well. I really like, you know, when they're in the greenhouse and Bogart's, like, dying of, of heat in there. And the general's, like... Completely yeah. wrapped up in his robe and blanket. And he's just like, yeah, it's hot in here. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. I, I just like that dynamic because it's, you know, you have the Philip Marlowe character who seems like, I have no idea what's going on and I'm like taking off all these clothes or, or taking off my jacket and stuff and sweating through bullets. And you have General Sternward there all wrapped up hiding everything, you know. He's like, I have all the knowledge and I'm having all the secrets and they're all just for me, Mr. Marlowe. <laughs> and not even one drop of sweat. But th yeah, and that's the, the thing. I really like the general character, but we don't see him for like the rest of the movie. Yeah, so it, it's kind of confusing to see who they're looking for, who's being killed, why they're being killed. It's just, I don't know why, I'm I'm starting to think of, like, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. 
where he's just kind of, you know, driving around. He's this P.I. And it's just, okay, we're going to go this way now. We're going to go that way now. Well, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Who Framed Roger Rabbit is more like Chinatown than it is mm-hmm. um, uh, The Big Sleep. But the thing is, is, you know, we were talking about Howard Hawks a second ago. You noticed how fast this movie is, right? The pace of it. Oh, yeah. Where all the dialogue is just, like, shotgunned out or machine gunned out just, like, really, really fast. That We're was... going from scene to scene really, really fast. That was my one gripe in this noir. We didn't get a lot of Cs. Yeah, there's no Edward G. Robinson. I know. There's no Edward G. Robinson. Boo, you need more Edward G. Robinson movies in your life. I really do. Those movies are fun. But that's the thing. Like, the Hawks pace of this, I think, is going into why it's so hard to keep track of everything because there's a bunch of named characters like 10 12 named characters that are all plot relevant elijah cook jr shows up in the last like 30 minutes of the movie yeah and then and he has all this information and then he dies after two scenes three mm-hmm. scenes i think and you're like well what the fuck was that what? i know as soon Rosen as and Gildenstern are dead what is this bullshit as soon as we got that scene i was like oh my god he's from the killing Killing, uh, House on Haunted Hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Elijah Cook Jr. is slowly becoming film club MVP. He is, and man, he he has a horrible death in this movie. Yeah, he's poisoned, and then it doesn't explain why the guy poisoned him and didn't just shoot him, because he had a gun. And then it's like, I, and I guess, like, in the book, it's explained that that guy lives next to a cyanide factory, so he can just get cyanide <laughs> all the time. Yeah, oh, okay. The Big no. Sleep novel is the... <laughs> pulpiest of pulpy I, I think bullshit. we need to find a couple of copies of it and read it. Apparently it's like still in print. You can get one at like Barnes and Noble. Like they're really popular. But no, it's We just... need to go to the used bookstore and get a used <laughs> copy and sit there and read about the cyanide factory and... Yeah. Apparently it is... There's some wacky shit in the books. But uh, what what else do we have here? Uh, so... But like, that's the thing. Like Howard Hawks has this very, like, fast-paced, snappy dialogue thing going on, and the dialogue's the best part of the movie. Yeah. There's so many little bits with Marlo and Mars, Marlo and um, Vivian and uh, Carmen and Mona, like, all of them. He has such great interactions with everyone in the cast. I, I think the the best interaction, and we talked about this before we started recording, was him and the cabbie. Because, you know, we don't get a, a follow that car in the traditional sense. Mm-hmm. But we do get um, the cabbie. She's very, you know, enthralled with him. Another of, uh, hey there, Nalan. Yeah, if I ever need you, can I call you? She's like, call me day or night. What's better, day or night? Oh, nights. I work during the day. Oh, and, and wink, the, wink, nudge, nudge. And you have, you know, those coy smiles between the two of them. And he gets out of the car and proceeds back to work because he's a PI on the job. Who's also trying to get them digits from this cabbie. Apparently he gets every woman's digits in this movie because he's got a lot of game. <laughs> he does, he does. Now, speaking of game, we should probably talk about uh, Bogart's IRL best game he pulled. Uh, we'll talk about the uh, Bogart-Bacall connection. Yeah, this was their second film together. Uh, they did a total of five movies together. Their first was To Have and Have Not. Mm-hmm. Also directed by Howard Hawks, I mm-hmm. believe. Uh, yeah, I guess their relationship started as an affair. Bogart's been married four times. Sounds right for a classic Hollywood-leaning man. Yeah, so they got together, and apparently in the making of this movie, there was a thing where they made the movie, they cut it, and then they released it to, like, troops overseas. So they got it before the general audiences here got it. So once they got ready to, you know release it to the public, I guess they went back and they did reshoots. So the first time they made the movie, they were dating, and when they came back to do reshoots, they were already married. Yeah, because um, I, I know a little bit about like the weird release schedule of the movie, because I guess there's two or three cuts of the movie. Because the original was released overseas because um, I, I believe Warner Brothers did this movie. Yeah. So... Warner Brothers, they had a, a slate of war films that they wanted to release, mm-hmm. but the war was going to end because 1946. So they pushed back uh, the Big Sleep's release so that they could release all these war films in America. They wanted to try and cash in on the patriotism. But the Big Sleep, they wanted to recoup some money, so they released it overseas on like US, or, like, US Army bases, mm-hmm. right? And they got their run of it, but while that was going on, the... 
fascination with the celebrity couple, you know, Bogart, Bacall, you know, they were the brand, the Bragelina of the 1940s. And they were like, you know, let's reshoot some stuff, you know, and uh, really emphasize this relationship. So they did a whole reshoot to emphasize that. And they also cut out, I think, 20 minutes of the movie to add that in. So it's like, we take out 20, we add 20. Yeah. And I believe the original cut was lost for like 20 or 30 years until they found the original reels of it. Mm -hmm. And they were able to restore it. But that's kind of a weird thing where they were like, guys, the tabloids say we should take our million dollar movie and reshoot like the last fourth of it. Guys, TMZ is dictating our studio budget right now. That and because he was having problems in his marriage and, you know, you've got this affair going on on the side. I guess he was drinking a lot. So that was kind of a Bogart thing. Bogart drinks a lot? I know. But, I'm so shocked. But apparently it was so much so that they were kind of like, we can't shoot. So it was this thing where, you know, we kind of got to help him get back up and we're not going to do filming right now because he's not in the best condition to do so. And also, that's why this movie took, I think it was like five months to shoot. It was it was more than like the normal 30 days or whatever yeah. to make. Like this was like a four or five month shoot because Bogart kept having like drinking problems or mm-hmm. kept like, hey, I can't show up on set because I'm like, I'm not feeling well mm-hmm. or, or things like that. Yeah. And I know, I think from a Lauren Bacall interview, she was talking about the making of the movie and how much fun they had making the movie, that it was just a blast to be on set because a lot of people were getting along. It wasn't one of those sets where it's like, ooh, can we get this over with? You know, this is going to be a flop. It's like, no, you know, we're having a good time together. But apparently, word got down to Jack Warner of Warner Brothers, and he was just like, I guess he sent out like a message to them. I heard you guys are having a lot of fun on set. This must stop. And it's just like... <laughs> well, I think he said that because they were like, or they were way over schedule. Yeah. And I think they were like over budget too. And also Jack Warner was the kind of movie, old school, old school mm-hmm. movie producer that would throw you out of a third story window if you talk shit to him. Yeah. Also, have you ever heard of the like, like um, Lenny Mannix or like the Jack Warner, you know, like mafioso crew they had running back in the day? No. It's wild stories. You guys, you guys gotta like research like the crazy shit Jack Warner got up to. I'll, I'll look I'm, into it. I am positive that man has beaten to death at least two high-profile actors in his lifetime. You can't convince me otherwise. Hmm. But yeah, Jack Warner was not one to fuck with. Uh, but where do we want to go before the Warner family sues me for slander? Well, you know, going on with the relationship between Bogart and Bacall, I guess Howard Hawks didn't approve of it. Not surprising, yeah, I guess. didn't approve of it. He had discovered, you know, what was going on, and he felt very protective over her, kind of like, you know, don't do this, he's married. But then you He was s- probably like, Lauren, no, don't go to Bocard. I mean, come over to Papa Hawks over here. Well, no, he, he was married, and I guess... So was Bogart, that is not an excuse. No, but it was a thing where uh, Howard Hawks and his wife you know, because they're part of Hollywood, they tried to set Lauren Bacall up with their friend Clark Gable. And it was just this thing where it's just like... <laughs> very interesting lineup, okay. But very Hollywood, where it's like, you know, whoa, whoa, he's married. Why don't you come over here and meet our friend Clark? And the you four know, of the us, king of Hollywood. And know. the four of us will go to dinner at Musso and Frank's. I really... Oh my god, that that's, that's interesting. That is very interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, you could really see the chemistry between these two people. They were married... Two or three months after the movie was finally completed. Yeah. So it's just this thing where it's like, maybe it's going to work for them. And, you know, seeing history, it did. They were married up until his death. Yeah, and like 58, I think. Somewhere in there. I think they were married for like 11 years. Yeah, that that works out, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. And you see it on the screen. I mean, their chemistry is so good together. It's really hard for me to like articulate a lot of good things about the movie because the movie is just so exercise and aesthetic Mm -hmm. but one good thing is the chemistry between bogart and mccall like they really play off of each other well this snappy you know hard-boiled you know two-fisted actiony you know noir dialogue flows so well Mm -hmm. from these people humphrey bogart was literally made 
to be a, a star in these noir films. And Lauren Bacall, please tell me she had a career as being a femme fatale in, like, every Warner Brothers noir film. Please tell me that was a thing, because she is designed for this. Yeah, I mean, I haven't followed too much in Bacall's movies. Mm. I know the first Bacall movie for this podcast was Howl's Moving Castle. She's in it, but, you know... She'd be, what, like, 80-something or that? Yeah, but, I mean, I haven't really dived into the filmography of Lauren Bacall. Mm -hmm. I just know her as, you know, one of these knockouts of old Hollywood where it's just, she's got the look, she's got the wit, and she's got the talent. Uh, To some, she had the talent. Okay, so I wanted to bring this up because back in the day when this movie came out, people did not like Bacall. One of the critics said, um, Bogart does a fine turn as Philip Marlowe and Lauren Bacall looks so beautiful as the femme fatale of this noir drama if only she could act it would be a better movie and i'm wondering if maybe that's why hawks you know kind of had this kind of protective friendship you know with her because people were just giving her crap for no reason i know it was a thing where someone said a rumor for when they're at the the nightclub or the casino and she's singing someone said a rumor of oh that was dubbed she can't really sing and it was like well no she sings in to have and have not and it's and the same voice. It's the same voice, and you could tell that it's not, you know, another track that's laid over, you know, the the movie. So it's just like, what's your beef with her? Well, okay, let's look at it like this. Because for the era of, you know, the 1940s, who's your major female, like, serious actress? It's like Catherine Hepburn, right? Yeah, Catherine Hepburn's Catherine there. Hepburn and Lauren Bacall are two different styles of actors. Lauren Bacall is not nearly as um theatery as Catherine Hepburn cuz it feels to me like Lauren Bacall is acting like a leading actress would do in like the 50s or the even like the early 60s mm-hmm. she doesn't feel like the kind of um she's too natural I'll put it like that cuz at this time we're still dealing with a lot of actors that think screen acting is the same as theater acting where it's very over the top and kind of theatrical and Mm -hmm. everyone kind of talks like this as they are projecting to the world around them their emotions to the back seats of the auditorium Mm -hmm. but lauren mccall is a lot more kind of subtle she's playing a lot more you know naturalistically she doesn't feel like a like a theatrical characterization she makes her character feel like she is a living breathing person i mean even when she's in the car with marlo you know, she's always kind of like in a laying down slump position in the passenger seat where, you know, she's just kind of hanging out or she's, you know, kind of twisting, you know, the, the thing of her purse, the the handle of her purse. And it's just she comes across as a person and not, you know, I'm waiting for my next b- big scene. You know, let me walk out into the veranda. Yeah, it's not like um Martha Vickers, who plays Carmen, uh, her sister, who really is kind of chewing into the scenery and is oh, yeah. really kind of playing up that oh mr Marlowe, how are you doing this day as she falls into his arms literally falls into his arms yeah. like you're cute and i'm like you are you are the kind of person that people now would say is an unrealistic expectation of women but but it's such a good job by um martha vickers because she's just you know so over the top, and of course she'd be the younger sister that gets away with everything. It's like, let me just fall into your arms and look at how cute I am. She bites her thumb, and it's like, honey, like the sexual innuendo here is already pouring out of this film. It, we get it. We get it. Or you when, want a doink. It's okay. Or when she's in the house and you got you have the guy that's there lying on the floor murdered, but she's sitting there high as a kite. Yes. And Marlo's kind of like, you know, what happened? And she's just so... Far off, loosey-goosey. He's got to slap her around a little bit to kind of wake her up and be like, well, shit, I got to take you home now. But it's funny in this, you know, concept because the two of them, Marlo and Carmen, are very physical with each other. You know, she's either falling onto him or when she sneaks into his office. Yeah. And she's, you know, just trying to be so cutesy and I'm adorable sitting here and he kind of, you know, oh, let me help you up and picks her up and throws her out of the office and locks the door. So it's like... That's why I like um, this Philip Marlowe character. He's a zero bullshit kind of detective character. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Bogart is so good looking in a fedora and a trench coat. And he's, you know, the quintessential detective of the 40s. 
that's the thing that um I think we we really should just talk about you know the the Bogart right because this is Bogart month and we've talked about you know four of his you know mm-hmm. films probably four of his most like you know well known or career defining ish films yeah. right you know um, African Queen that's what he won his Oscar mm-hmm. for Casablanca that's what he's going to be immortalized for Trust mm-hmm. the Madre I would say is his best like performance and then we have the Big Sleep which is kind of the most distilled this is what he did for most of his career kind of kind of role and honorary film of this month that we didn't get a chance to talk about the maltese falcon which really cemented him as a star yeah but we didn't want to do three um john houston movies in a row that seems a little weird yeah so the maltese falcon will be talked about at a later date but we had to give it a an honorary mention because i mean that movie really you know helped him get this movie but um, the the Bogart, you know, yes. the big Bogart in the room. Him in not only The Big Sleep, but throughout this month, I think we've gathered that Humphrey Bogart is one of the one of the most engaging actors of this kind of era of Hollywood, right? Yeah. Why do you think that is? He's got the it factor. I mean, we've seen it in the different movies that we have. We we've seen you know traditional kind of stoic, stern. Humphrey Bogart and his characters, and then we get that kind of surprising performance in The African Queen where he's actually funny and kind of chomping the scenery, and in this movie it's kind of a fusion of both of those where he's funny but he's also serious at the same time. He can play the straight man but also is like totally okay winking to the camera. We've seen him play completely unhinged pure dramatic role in Treasures Here Madre. It's just this thing where, you know, he's got so many different layers to him. And I think that's the appeal of him is just, you don't know what you're going to get, but it's going to be fun. It's true. I mean, I think that's a good way to put it. The guy has range. Yeah. And that's the thing a lot of actors of this era, maybe not didn't have, but weren't able to show off as much. Like, you know, Cary Grant or a Jimmy Stewart type, they had a, they had a type, you know? Yeah. Cary Grant was usually always the... Oh, you know, I'm Gary Grant. I'm going to be a romantic leading man tonight, and I'm probably going to do some rather funny quips, but that is Gary Grant. Like, he's never going to give you a Shakespearean tragedy performance. Like, Jimmy Stewart is going to be the, oh, well, shucks, guys, you know, you know, oh, we're going to get him, boys. Like, he's just going to be the- Clarence, Clarence. Exactly. He's going to be the nice guy every man, but he can't, he's not going to play the, oh, I'm going to- walk in here, I'm going to shoot up this bar, and then I'm going to take the dame and, you know, fight my way out of this. He, I mean, I know, like, these actors have done other stuff outside of I mean, the roles they're known for. We did have Vertigo, where he completely was like, I will love you unless you change for I me. I will love you to death? Dun-dun-dun. But that's the thing. This era, a lot of actors were defined by types. Yeah. And I know I picked, like, two of the most notable actors of that era. Mm-hmm. And they did do stuff outside of those types, but... We remember them as those types. Whereas Bogart, we remember all these different performances and not just his type as the, oh, well, he was the noir, the gruff noir guy. Mm -hmm. But it's like, well, he was the gruff noir guy, but we remember him in this romantic drama in Casablanca. Or, oh, well, he, okay, he was a rough noir guy that could play the romantic leading man, but he was always the cool headed one. Well, in Treasure Sierra Madre, he's like objectively the villain and he's absolutely insane. And it's just, you know, progressively getting worse until he loses it completely. Yeah, and it's like, okay, well, he can play good in, like, dramas where he's able to play, like, either serious or or crazed and then African Queen. No, he can be funny. He can play almost a straight comedy, more or less, or, yeah, a romantic comedy. And it's, I think that's the beauty of Bogart. He has this great range that you don't see in this era, and also he worked with, like, some of the best directors Hollywood's ever seen. That probably helps, you know. But yeah, I, I think, you know, Bogart was kind of a fun, you know, a fun actor to pick for this month because we really, like you said, got to see the range of him. And in this movie, he's got a lot of range because he's got to go back and forth between, you know, this P.I., but he's falling in love with Vivian. But is Vivian really good or is she the femme fatale? Uh, that's another thing about the... Uh, okay. I know we just kind of did our Bogart wrap-up thing, but we got to go back to Big Sleep real quick. We have to, yeah. So, 
The Big Sleep, I wrote this down that this is Howard Hawks' exercise in noir. Mm -hmm. But it's not a true noir, Mm -hmm. in a sense. Because, yeah, we have, like, the fast-talking, hard-boiled detective. But, like, it's not really lit all that much like noir, where it's all the deep shadows and, you know, the smoky rooms and and the dark, nefarious atmosphere. And... Lauren Bacall, would you call her a traditional femme fatale like uh, Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity or um, the, the our leading lady from The Killing? Like, would you call her a traditional femme fatale or is she something else? Is she just a love interest? I'm going to go with yes and no. Mm-hmm. Because... Really yeah. ride in the line oh, there. Oh, definitely. Really sitting on that fence. Yeah, exactly. I, I can't give you a straight answer. I gotta go with, you know, two answers. The one that'll give us the most time on this episode. Yes! But... <laughs> No, really, you know, since this movie is a noir, but isn't a noir, it's yes and no. In the novel, she is the femme fatale. She is an accomplice to these murders. And Howard Hawks was, you know, very, I don't want this character to end up like the same uh, same way in the novel. So that's why we kind of get these, you know, moments where Marlo goes to the apartment and there she is in the back room. And you're, you know, as the person in the audience... I thought she was good. You're starting to see her with the bad guys. And no, I don't want Vivian to be bad. I want Vivian to be good. And you see her at the safe house, you know, that's eight miles away from a phone. And it's just like, okay, random, but whatever. And you're just like, okay. You're like, no, why is she here? These are the bad guys. Vivian can't be one of the bad guys. And then that's when we get the moment where she frees him when he's tied up by the bad guys. And the two of them go off together and it's, you know, am I going to talk to the police? You know, will you talk with me? Yes, I will. So you see that Vivian, you know, has been taking care of her sister. You know, I'm willing to take the fall for you. So it's like we kind of get this femme fatale, but we don't because she's really good on the inside. Yeah, it it's it tings more to me like on paper she was supposed to be the femme fatale. Mm-hmm. Like adapting it from the book, yeah. she was supposed to be the the traditional femme fatale, the spider lady. She's gonna spin this web our hero's gonna get trapped in and eventually lead to his downfall or her own downfall what have you but it really feels like oh no she was the femme she was supposed to be that for the first hour of the movie Mm -hmm. hour 20 until the last act of the movie where they're just like oh no she was just playing hard to get old boy it's totally fine she's on your side yeah which again i think goes to the fact this movie had five fucking writers yeah, a lot of, you know, different people just throwing stuff in there and what's going to work and how much do we want to save from the book. So I think originally that was the way that it was supposed to go. Mm. But since we already have, you know, basically the good and the bad sister, they were kind of like, well, we can't have two bad girls or two femme fatales in this movie. So let's kind of put her in that light where she could, you know, be a little bit more on the, the bad side. Well, but but we're really going to show that, no, she's actually good and willing to take the fall for her family. Well, I think that's the interesting thing about the sisters, right? Because you have Carmen, who on the front is, oh, she's this ditzy girl that got in way over her mm-hmm. head. And Vivian's kind of this cold, calculated kind of character. But by the end of the movie, it's like, oh, no, Carmen is not not this ditzy girl. She's, like, objectively a bad person who who is her own worst enemy. Yeah. And Vivian, oh, she's a cold, calculated person. But, no, really, she's, like, a good-natured at heart. She's just not a very, like, openly affectionate kind of person. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting dichotomy where, by the end of the movie, our views of them has switched completely. Yeah. And we have Marlo as our surrogate leading the way, you know. And it's, it's really interesting because, you know, at the beginning, Carmen throws herself at him. And he's like, nah, honey, I, I'm I'm here, you know, for a job. And by the end of it, he's like, so, Vivian, what are you doing tonight? Because I'm Philip Marlowe, and I'm just saying, I got some game over here. If you haven't seen the last two hours of the movie. Yeah, and I mean, you have that scene where, you know, she's helping him get out of the ropes and, you know, basically helping him escape this house so that he could, you know, kill his two captors. And it's just this thing, you know, where... He's like, you know, thank you for doing this, but why are you doing this? And it's this this thing where she's like, I guess I'm in love with you. That's why I'm doing this. And you get that on the car ride when they're going to drive to the police where he's like, well, I guess I'm in love with you, too. And you could see it from when they first meet. You know, it's these opposites kind of attracting and, you know, 
yeah, we're just going to throw these quips at each other and just, you know. You know they're going to end up together you, from the first time they walk into the room. Yeah, you could see it, you know, right off the bat. Ooh, this, you know, I don't like him. And, oh, she's, you know, stuck up, you know, rich girl living at her dad's house. Whatever. But, yeah, I like her. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to get on to the big sleep before we wrap up the month? Um, I thought it was interesting that, you know, Warner Brothers, Jack Warner, wanted Howard Hawks to go and purchase the rights to this movie. Mm-hmm. And apparently he gave him $55,000 to do so. Yeah, um, Howard Hawks bought it for ten k and pocketed the rest. <laughs> My boy, Howard Hawks. <laughs> it was That's like, a payday right there. He's like, yo, how how much do you want for it? Okay, we'll take it and we'll just give the invoice to the boss. Yeah, mm-hmm, the whole thing. <laughs> I want to imagine he walks into Raymond Chandler's office and he's like, look here, guy. Okay, so I want your book rights for five thousand dollars and chandler's like i'll laugh you out of the office 10 grand is the lowest i'll go he's like all right here's 10 grand yeah and then no. he's like all right you have a good day sir and i want to imagine he just rips off like 10 grand off the top of a stack of 20s and just hands it over and chandler's like oh that was that should have been all my money and hawk's like yeah it should have been buddy should have been you should have been a better negotiator than you were writer well that was <laughs> the rumor that he had bought it for five thousand dollars and pocketed everything but i guess a film historian by the name of john tusca he was like, no, it was actually 10K. So he probably started, yo, I'll give you five. And Raymond Chandler was like, mm, that's that's not where I want to go. All right, all right, you're, you're killing me, but I'll give you 10. Son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> Should have been a negotiator instead of a writer, Mr. Chandler. <sighs> <sighs> yeah, but that was a big sleep. It's on Robert, Roger Ebert's greatest movies list of all time. I read uh, that uh, that greatest movie essay before we did the episode. It's, you know, on uh, Akira Kurosawa's 100 favorite films of all time. It's pretty it's pretty strong. Kurosawa is one of the one of the greatest of all time. Yeah, so I know, know it was on the Sight and Sound 250 from 2012, I believe. Uh, and I think it, it was on the AFI, like, 400 films, like, they yeah. were selected from. Yeah, so, I mean, this movie is on major lists and is liked by so many renowned people, and... It has pedigree. It does, and being able to finally see it and analyze it, I can see why. I mean, this is such a strong movie, and didn't need a plot. <laughs> didn't need a strong plot. Didn't it, need a strong plot. Its plot is just there for cool shit to happen. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of cool and funny things happen and you know yeah the, the bodies just keep piling up and it's like well i don't care because we got would you say the bodies hit the floor Let the bodies hit the floor yes yes but yeah i mean we have a lot of death in this movie and we go back to the scene of the crime and it's never taped off or anything you could just you know Stroll in, stroll out. I thought that was so fucking funny. We're like, oh. so we got this murder crime scene, hey? Well, well, let's not tell anybody. I'm, just, I, I kind of want it as a hangout. It's a nice bachelor pad. We'll just keep, keep going there, have I, brunch. You know. I think that was one thing that I wanted to talk about when you know Marlo keeps going back to the house and the body's gone. And then well, the body's there again. The body's you know back in the bed again, and it's just like. What is going on? It's it's like a joke, you know? It's like, okay, first there's a dead body. No, the dead body's gone. No, we come back. Now the dead body's positioned in it's the bed. It's a Marx Brothers bit. Every time you leave the room, you come back, it's different. There's even candles lit in the room with the dead body. And it's just like, what is happening? But I love... With that, the henchman who dropped off the body had to be like, now this is nice, but I got a couple of Yankee candles that can really tie the scene together. They're scented. I think I think it'll really help hide the, the musk of dead body in here. Yankee candles really tie a room together. Did the henchman bring the candles? I that is something that is not explained in I, this I movie. Think, I think those candles are already in the house. I mean, this is already a cool-looking house. He's got those cool beads, you know, to kind <laughs> of be the transition from one room to the other. He has a Buddha statue with a hidden camera in it. That was awesome. I love that. I You just like it? I, okay. I know why you liked it, because they open it up and you see the camera in there, and I'm like, yeah, that is a giant camera that could only fit inside a giant um, statue. Because statue. Yes. the statue is not like a, oh, it's like a little thing with a spy camera. It has like a full, like, 35 millimeter, like, machine 
in there. Well, it's like a sewing machine shoved inside of the statue. This is the 40s. Cameras were huge then. We didn't have the little cameras that we have today. I also and like how it's it's a hidden camera, but he still has, has to have the flash. flash. He has to hold outside and be like, look here, honey, stand still. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> What's the flash for? Don't worry about it. Look at the statue, honey. It's fine. Well, yeah, that, that was just, you know, so many things going in the house. And I was just like, what? But I love it at the same time. It's goofy as hell, but you don't care how goofy it is. You know, you have Marlo first entering the house through the window. It's just like... I love how he runs up and he's like, runs up and he's about to kick through the door and jump in. But when it cuts to the inside, it's gingerly just opens up. It doesn't even hit the wall. No. It's like he didn't even kick it. He just kind of tapped it with his foot and then gently walks in like a, like a, like a burglar in the night. I, I guess that's part of PI training. You know, you learn how to be extra quiet and, you know, you come through the window. But I love, you know, all these encounters with the house that leads to the final encounter with Mars, right? Yes. Mars and his henchmen. And he's, you know, okay, well, Vivian, you locked the doors back there. And, uh, oh, I'm about to shoot the gun. So get on the floor, Angel. You know, it's just. Mars <laughs> hires the worst henchman <laughs> on the planet. He's like, Marla, I didn't expect you to be alive here. And he's like, yeah, I know you didn't. But now, I'm going to make you go out that door. Because I know you got two henchmen out there. Probably told him to shoot anyone who ran who runs out that door. And he's like, God damn it, Marlo, you're right. My henchmen are absolutely idiots. They will absolutely shoot their boss, who is going to run out and say, Boys, don't shoot. And obviously try and signal that I am their boss. But they and will the, still riddle me with bullets. And the boys shoot. I mean, I even love how cheesy it is when Mars gets there and he's like, Ooh. I beat him here. I'm gonna, you know, booby trap the house myself. And you know, he gets the the cord for the phone and the scissors. And it's very slow. And he's smiling at the camera, like, "Ooh, I'm about to cut the cord." So he tries to call for help. And you have Marlo come out from behind the curtain. I got here first, Mars. He's just like, "Damn, swiper, no swiping." It. Okay, that, I think that's our final thoughts on the big sleep. It is absolutely ridiculous, and we absolutely don't care. Oh no. Don't care, but we love this movie. It's also free on online. Internet was, Archive. Yeah, Internet Archive. It was free. Um, it's probably been on YouTube before. I tried following a, a web IP and the link was down. So I guess at one point it was on YouTube. Um, yeah, because this is an old enough movie that it's probably a, almost in the public domain mm -hmm. or some such. So you can definitely find it. But um, I guess you're final thoughts on the big sleep before we get to our final thoughts on bogart mom i give it two big thumbs up i highly recommend um if you love noir comedies even if you want to get into like films of the 40s i feel like this is a good stepping stone because it's it's got so much to it uh i would agree yeah two thumbs up on this one and as an entry point into bogart and this kind of genre it's pretty good uh, Howard Hawks again he's one of the technical masters and the films just work like yeah. you know this one yeah the plot's kind of weird but you're here for the acting you're here for Bogart Ooh. you're here for the snappy dialogue and you kind of want the convoluted plot but yeah two thumbs up incredibly enjoyable I watched this movie twice yeah I was surprised in prep for this episode one because I liked it and two because I I really had to be like, is this plot actually this this ridiculous? But really dig dig it. Really did dig it. Really dug it. Dig dug it. I really dig dug it. Um, but yeah, so final thoughts on Bogart Month as a whole. As a whole, yeah. I mean, this was a, a great month in my opinion. Um, Definitely we, had the greatest lineup we've had in a long time. Yeah. I mean, these were some bangers and... You know, whether you know the filmography of Bogart or you don't, I think this is kind of the best way to show the range of who Humphrey Bogart was. One of the greatest leading men of all time, and you could really see why in his films. Because, I mean, he is just... Captivating. Captivating, yes. Uh, yeah, I would agree. He One of the great actors of his era, he really did have depth. He really was able to really kind of do the best you could in the era he worked in, you know, with the production code and yeah. method acting not really being a thing in America at the time. Um, but yeah, this was a great lineup of movies. Um, I can't wait to, to revisit Bogart Month. But what are we doing next month? Well, since we're at the end of January, that means February is right around the corner. And what way to celebrate the month of love 
live by talking about romantic comedies. Yes, but not the bad romantic comedies you might be thinking of. Yeah. Like, 98% of them. Yeah, you know, not the ones with the, you know, traditional tropes that, you know... Not the ones with, you know, Ryan Reynolds and uh, Ashton Kutcher and Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn Whoa, and... whoa, whoa. I love most of those people. You you walked out of the breakup. That's why I said most of those people. And yeah, there you go. So not not the... Not those ones. We're talking about, like, some classics here. I and do, I, and a surprise one. I do love me some friends, so... Jennifer Aniston, I do love you. Okay. But, yeah, well, we're gonna do romantic comedies in a different way than you guys might be expecting. We're not, you know, gonna go heavy on early 2000s where, man, we were really in a, a vicious cycle of romantic comedy one after the other. And and, have, and start tearing into a lot of the bad ones. Yeah. So we're gonna be talking about romantic comedies through the decades. Some of the best to do it. Some of the best, and maybe some you've never heard of before. And we're going to be starting with a film from 1937. I don't know if this is one of the oldest films we've talked about on the podcast. We might have to go back and see... Oh, Dracula, 1930. That's the oldest. 30 or 31? It's. I think it's 30. It might be 31. It might be 31. Okay, so we're going to be talking about a film from the 30s called The Awful Truth, starring Cary Grant. Yo, and, boy. Oh, my boy. And Irene Dunn. Uh, I know you haven't seen this movie. I have not. Uh, this is a new one for me. Uh, if it's anything like Hawks' Bringing Up Baby, uh, it'll probably be pretty good. Yeah, this is a really good film. Uh, it's kind of hard to find. It just came out on Criterion last year. Yeah, so Criterion Channel should have it. You know, Criterion Collection, you can pick those up in any Barnes & Noble near you. So this is a film that's near and dear to my heart. I really hope that you enjoy it. But that's what we'll be talking about next week. And if you wanted to follow along with us, where can they go? If you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Yeah, you can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube. We release video versions of this podcast that are basically my lovely slideshows. You can go and check those out. You can leave some comments, like, comment, subscribe. And if you wanted to follow us on social media, where could they go? You could follow us on Instagram at the Film Club Podcast, where we post daily stories, upcoming episodes, trivia, and our daily adventures. And with that, we'll see you next week at the Film Club. Have a good week, everybody. Peace.